Yeah. There we go. We just deleted everything that's on there. Sorry. <laughs> yeah. Well, how, so everybody's doing all right? Everybody's having a pretty good week? Now, y'all know I'm pro-chip, okay? I'm pro-chip, pro-snack, pro-candy. But we'll try to keep it down to at least a reasonable level because you know when you're sitting next to, like, the Tasmanian devil where, like, the only thing you hear is, like, chip wrappers ruffling for you hear the you hear the crinkling paper like non-stop and i know none of you are starving some of you get here and you grab like six bags of chips as if you haven't eaten in three weeks i know that's not true like i don't at some point it's just pure gluttony right so like yeah i can promise you you're not going to starve if you Hold off on snacks till after lesson, and and we just don't have to listen to so many crinkling rappers. Go ahead. Oh really? Well, that's his fault. Well, we'll have a talk with. Yeah, Max. Max is on his way to being a grown man. He can go into that kitchen and fix himself a sandwich. I don't think we have snacks after Okay, well, if you have snacks, you can hold on to them. They won't disappear, and you won't disappear, and so you can eat them after lesson. Right? Right. You're right, and if that happens, you'll be all right. Um, you won't miss a snack. So, all right, guys. So, opening up to Matthew chapter nine. Matthew chapter nine. When <clears throat> when people have a problem with Christ. There's probably numerous reasons why, but I think two um, aspects to the gospel that people can be offended by, which is really kind of an odd concept to start with. You know, the message that God has sent his son for the forgiveness of your sins is a, is a, a how could that be an offensive thing, right? Well, there's two aspects that people can really get hung up on. There's others, but two big ones that I would hone in on is, first of all, the disruptiveness of Jesus Christ. The fact that following Christ is a process of dying to yourself, of leaving your, your old life behind. Christ said, if you want to follow me, take up your cross daily and follow me. That means whatever is currently the most important thing in your life, your priority is no longer your priority. Jesus Christ is now your priority. And people who love this world and love the things of this world have a very difficult time letting go of the things of this world. I think the other area where you see people really get offended by Jesus is when you talk about the exclus exclusivity that Jesus Christ is the only way to heaven. People don't typically have a problem with, you know, you have your own system, your own philosophy, your own way of thinking, and maybe you just uh, staple Jesus onto that as a piece of it, as a tag along. But that's not what Christ came to do. Christ came to call us to be his disciples, which means we set aside every other way of trying to obtain fellowship with God. We set aside all of our own philosophies and our own wisdoms to take on that of Jesus Christ. And as we look at Matthew chapter 9, verses 14 to 17, that's exactly what Jesus tells a group who comes to question him. 
And as you look at just the ministry, the life of Jesus, pretty much everybody, and I would say everybody that he interacts with in the, throughout his life, throughout the gospel narrative, their life is dramatically altered. You got start with just his parents, you know, Mary and Joseph. They're just they're looking forward to getting married. They're betrothed, and it's uh, it's it's an angel shows up all of a sudden and says, "Guess what, Mary? You're pregnant." With all right, I see. I hear a bunch of Tasmanian devil devil rapper action out here. It doesn't make any sense. I can assure you, you won't starve to death if you set aside your bag of chips for like the next hour. Um, okay, like, uh, but the, the angel shows up, Mary, you're going to be carrying this child from the Holy Spirit. Uh, you, you think of the Magi, Herod, um, Christ rarely did way, things the way people expected. Um, John the Baptist, his whole ministry was changed and and just kind of, in a sense, eclipsed by the ministry of Christ. Um, and as early as Matthew chapter 4, Matthew records for us that people were astonished at the works and the authority and the teaching of Jesus. Um, people had in their minds this image, this mold of what they expected the Messiah to be, or even what a rabbi was supposed to be, or um, even what a prophet was. And Christ shows up and really, in a lot of ways, just blows that out of the water, just completely shatters that. He disrupts their expectation. And we see a lot of different reactions to this, right? Are there people who do leave everything to follow Christ? Yes. We see We saw it with Matthew, right? Jesus calls Matthew. Matthew leaves his tax booth. He follows Christ. We see people that are just repeatedly amazed. Now, that doesn't mean that they became followers of Christ. It's, it's, it's one thing to observe the beauty and, or be amazed at Christ from a distance. A total other thing to accept him as Lord of your life and give your life to him. Um, we see that some people just flat out rejected him. And then we also see a lot of people just asking him questions, questioning him throughout his life, throughout his ministry. And that's really what we have an episode of tonight. Jesus being questioned. We see this Matthew chapter 9, verses 14 to 17. Let's just read this passage real quick. John, Matthew 9, 14 to 17, then the disciples of John came to Jesus asking, why do we and the Pharisees fast, but your disciples do not fast? And Jesus said to them, the attendants of the bridegroom cannot mourn as long as the bridegroom is with them, can they? But the days will come when the bridegroom is taken away from them, and then they will fast. But no one puts a patch of unshrunk cloth on an old garment for the patch pulls away from the garment, and a worse tear results. Nor do people put new wine into old wineskins. Otherwise, the wineskins burst, and the wine pours out, of the wineskin, pours out, and the wineskins are ruined. But they put new wine into fresh wineskins, and both are preserved. What Jesus is telling them here is that justification through Christ, justification through him, is not compatible 
with any other means of trying to be right with God. Throughout history, people have concocted all different sorts of ideas on how can man make himself right with God. And the message of the gospel is, in and of yourself, you can't. That the standard is too high. That the standard is perfect holiness and perfect righteousness. But the good news of the gospel is that despite our sinfulness, despite how short we come of that standard, that God sent his perfect son to die on the cross to pay the penalty that his righteousness would be credited to us, that we would be right with God. But this path of justification doesn't involve any of the other paths of this world or any of the other philosophies or ways of thinking or religions of this world. And it's not compatible with those. Jesus is not something that can be simply a part of whatever religious system you have or whatever philosophy you have. Jesus is the one and exclusive way. This starts, part one that we'll look at is the question. The question. In verse 14, the disciples of John the Baptist come up to Jesus and ask him, why do we and the Pharisees fast, but your disciples do not fast? Now, we, we talked about fasting. I think it was Mr. Teagle that taught about fasting, like back when, because Jesus has talked about fasting a little bit already, right? Back in the Sermon on the Mount. What is the point of fasting? To draw closer to God. To draw closer to God. Hey, that is a really good, concise answer. That is a really good, concise answer. Um, Fasting is about those times of intense focus on God, those times of intense devotion, those times of intensely trying to grow closer to God. And Jesus is questioned here by some of the disciples of John the Baptist. Hey, why do your disciples not do this? Why do they not fast? And they bring in the Pharisees too. Um, I don't... You don't know for sure that the Pharisees are actually here. They might have just been kind of brought into the argument because the disciples of John the Baptist are like, hey, the Pharisees even do this. Like, if we do it and the Pharisees do it, like, this is kind of the religious norm. This is the normal practice that's expected of you. Why don't you do it? And it really is. Uh, a good question because is fasting a good thing it's kind of a weird question right because it's so out of vogue with us in our circles um yes because it gets everything off your mind so you can draw closer and really think more about god and know because god says not to punish your body yeah 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 i mean fasting is a good thing Fasting is a good thing. Those times of intense focus and intense devotion to drawing near to God is a good thing. And when Jesus talks about fasting, he always talks about it in a good light. Think, look back at Matthew 6. Jesus doesn't say, don't fast. Jesus puts parameters around it. Because here's what had happened. 
people had started like looking at fasting as this thing we do, but we make sure everybody knows about it. You know, those like things that that temptation you can even have sometimes when you do something good. You're like, hey, I hope a lot of people find out about this. So everybody thinks I'm a really good person. Well, if you remember the Sermon on the Mount, that is unequivocally in Jesus's mind a bad reason to do something for the praises of men to get recognition from men. It's not a good reason to do something. We do things for the glory of God and to please him and to serve others, but uh, to please him and to glorify him. And it's all about it's all about uh, him. And it's that way with fasting, too. But the problem with fasting, just like with so many things, is it became yet another platform or tool that people tried to use to show off their own self-righteousness. So in Matthew 6, Jesus says in verse 16, whenever you fast, do not put on a gloomy face as the hypocrites do, for they neglect their appearance so that they will be noticed by men when they are fasting. Truly, I say to you, they have the reward in full. But when you fast, anoint your head and wash your face so that your fasting will not be noticed by men, but by your father who is in secret. And your father who sees what is done in secret will reward you. So I don't know, maybe you all are fasting and you're just all really good at hiding it. Maybe, maybe not. But that's a, but Jesus doesn't say fasting's a bad thing. Jesus says, yeah, fasting's a good thing, but it's supposed to be about that relationship between you and God. This isn't something that you're trying to show off to others and um, um, get others to, no, to notice it. So I guess if jo- Jesus and his disciples were fasting, perhaps the disciples of John the Baptist wouldn't have even noticed it. But, um, it's a fasting is a good thing and who are the disciples of john who is john the baptist who remembers him who is john the baptist the cousin of jesus the cousin of jesus yeah that's right that isn't you're right wondering what i was thinking about uh go ahead what 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 was the role what did john the baptist do what was his role his purpose go ahead ian everyone about the savior that's coming yeah preparing a forerunner for christ right like preparing the people for the coming of the messiah for the ministry of jesus uh he was calling the people away from these superficial uh levels of religion outward expressions of religion to a deep um inner devotion true repentance and true devotion to god in preparation for the messiah he called them to repentance. In fact, when the Pharisees showed up, what did John tell the Pharisees when he started to see a lot of them showing up? Like, bear, repent, right? Bear fruit in keeping with repentance. Um, and, and so the disciples of John, John the Baptist, he was good. His ministry was good. The followers of John the Baptist were were not generally antagonistic towards Christ. They didn't present themselves as adversaries of the ministry of Christ. Even as late as Acts chapter 19, you see the gospel impacting uh, those who had followed the ministry of John the Baptist and coming to Christ in faith. And so when they come and they ask Jesus, hey, how come your followers don't fast? 
I don't think they're being facetious. I don't think they're being adversarial based on the history of John the Baptist and his ministry and his followers. I think this is probably a sincere question. Um, and who knows? It's very likely as disciples of John the Baptist or followers of his that they had a pretty low view of the Pharisees. Because remember when the Pharisees showed up, John didn't have a lot of respect for their legalistic form of religion, and he told them to repent of it. He called them a brood of vipers. And so I don't know this for a fact, but I kind of read this and think, based on when you put it all together, it's almost like they're saying, hey, Jesus, we fast. Even the Pharisees, who aren't really good at all, they fast. So if those who aren't even that good do this good thing of fasting, why aren't your disciples doing it? The question kind of makes sense, right? Go ahead, Ian. Because it, well, it's a kind of a bad thing to be following what Pharisees do. Because if an idiot's doing something, you shouldn't do what they're doing. Well, an idiot can do something incorrectly, and you can do it correctly, right? Like, just because the Pharisees corrupted a lot. Like the Pharisees externally did a lot of things. In fact, you bring it to mind and I, you, it, uh, you just bring it to mind. So I, it's hard to be committed. Y'all want to go with me on an adventure here? Um, you think of like Matthew 23 when um, yeah, Matthew 23, Jesus is getting ready to lay into the Pharisees, right? Verse 1. Jesus spoke to the crowds and his disciples, saying, The scribes and the Pharisees have seated themselves in the chair of Moses. In other words, they've made themselves an authority over you and claiming to speak for God. Therefore, all that they tell you, do and observe. Because they kind of said a lot of the right things externally. That's Jesus said, hey, they're like whitewashed tombs. Like externally, they did good. The problem was their hearts. And so that's why Jesus says, uh, do all that they tell you, do it and observe, but don't do it according to their deeds. For they say things and do not do them. They were saying the right things, but they were hypocrites. They weren't living that out, you know? So, um, so uh, yeah, all that to say, just because the Pharisees fasted doesn't make fasting a bad thing. They just did it with wrong hearts, hypocritically, and with wrong motives. Um, and so I think the, the disciples of John here are asking a very honest question. Here's the response that, that they have. They get an explanation from Jesus in verse 15 and then two illustrations. The explanation comes in verse 15. And Jesus said to them, the attendants of the bridegroom cannot mourn as long as the bridegroom is with them, can they? But the days will come when the bridegroom is taken away from them, and then they will fast. It's kind of an odd saying, but if you think about what Jesus is saying here, it makes perfect sense. When, when somebody gets married, their relationship with the rest of the world changes. Like, here's an illustration. My college roommate, Eddie, 
Eddie's an awesome guy. We're still good friends. We, we, we're still really close. And it was cool, too, because, I mean, God just, God's providence. Uh, my whole venture in college was like, I'm going to try to go into the unknown world and just see what happens. Like, Lubbock was six hours away from my hometown. I didn't know anybody that lived within like three and a half hours of that place, like not a soul. So I was like, this will be interesting to go kind of far away where I don't know anybody and see what happens. And then for the roommate, which your college dorm, your college dorm is like literally the size of like this corner. Like that's it. And it's like two beds. And like all of a sudden you are just like living side by side with a stranger. You can try to choose a roommate, but I was like, nah, I'm going with this all. I don't know anybody thing. So I just went random and uh, I get, I end up with this like six foot eight guy, Eddie. And he's super cool. We became really close friends. Our families are really close friends still. And we just grew very close throughout college and just so many fun stories, like a million fun stories and crazy stories. I mean, a lot of nutty things happen in four years when you're at like that transformative age from 18 to 23. And but when Eddie got married, it was like a period of mourning. We sat around the night after his wedding and we were like, well, this is it. Eddie's dead to us. Like, we'll never hang out with him again. We won't get to go camping with him. Like, he's married. He's got a family. And in a sense, it was very true. Like, it, we, we were mourning that night after Eddie got married because we knew we just weren't going to get to hang out with Ed. No more video games till like four in the morning, you know? Yeah, probably so. Did you feel bad for your friends when you got married? No, because I was the one leaving them. <laughs> they need to go get married. Uh, but, uh, but, um, but uh, yeah, so, like, what, what was the point of fasting? I thought that um, Josh over here gave an excellent, concise answer. Josh, what is the point of fasting? Draw closer to God. Draw closer to God. If you are walking eating, talking, living in a lot of ways with Jesus Christ. Physically, like the disciples, think about the apostles. Can you get closer to God? Are you ever going to have like more unfiltered access to God? Probably in heaven, but on earth? No. Like this was their time to be with Christ. This was their time to be with Jesus, but this wasn't going to last forever. Christ knew that his earthly ministry, walking this earth 2,000 years ago, he knew that it was limited. He knew that he was on his way to the cross to die for the sins of his people. So that's why Jesus says, the attendance of the bridegroom, Jesus is the bridegroom here. The attendance of the bridegroom, his disciples, his followers, cannot mourn as long as the bridegroom is with them, can they? But the day will come when the bridegroom is taken away from them, and then they will fast. It makes perfect sense. And of course, as followers of Christ, we have the privilege and the joy of the Holy Spirit inside of us that um, makes that fellowship 
all that that makes that fellowship possible and makes that fellowship ongoing. But the time for fasting was not during Christ's earthly ministry. And another thing here, what even though I think the disciples of John were asking an honest question, um, their question does show that they really haven't recognized at this point at least these individuals who Jesus Christ is. If you recognize who Jesus Christ is, then you don't do what they're doing here. Here, they are taking what the Pharisees do, this, the, the Pharisees' brand of religion, and exalting it above what the disciples of Christ were doing, right? They were saying, hey, it seems as though what the Pharisees are doing is better than what even your disciples are doing. Why don't your disciples hold up to the same standard as the Pharisees? They clearly miss the point of who Jesus Christ is. And that's where Jesus steps in and says, look, forget what the Pharisees are teaching you, what they're doing. Forget this legalistic form of religion. Because what I bring to you is the true way to God. Jesus shows us here how his gospel is not in any way compatible with this legalistic system of religion that the Pharisees have set up. This isn't something, Jesus isn't just somebody who can be supplemented to what the Pharisees were doing. Because what was the main issue with the Pharisees? How, how did they seek to be made right with God? Externally? By their own righteousness, right? Like they, they thought, hey, if I can keep this external level of standards, follow these rules, do all these things, then, then I can be right with God. And the point that Jesus is going to make with these next two illustrations here is no, like that is something that just has to be thrown away. Because I, what I bring to you as, as the Messiah isn't just something that can be tacked on to what the Pharisees are doing, or it isn't something that you can just modify and add on to what the Pharisees are doing. It is a totally new way of thinking. The first example he gives here is the patched garment. In verse 16, Jesus says, No one puts a patch of unshrunk cloth on an old garment, for the patch pulls away from the garment, and a worse tear results. So what's Jesus saying here? If you have a, a garment or a patch uh, uh, that has not been shrunk, and you go tie it onto an old garment, eventually that patch is going to shrink too, and it's going to pull away. The illustration here is what is that of incompatibility. Jesus is saying, what I am giving you, my message is incompatible with your man-made forms of religion. Syncretism Syncretism is a word you'll hear sometimes where 
it's, it's really a worldly way of thinking where the world wants to say, hey, all roads lead to God. How many of y'all have heard people say that? All roads lead to God. Like I have an uncle in England. He'll tell you like you, everybody worships the same God. They just, the God has different faces or like it's different sides of the same God. That's a worldly way of thinking, syncretism. And it's as old as the world. You look through the history of religions and people come up with their ways to earn, earn favor with God. That's always the most remarkable thing, not the most, but uh, one of the most remarkable things about Christianity is the fact that it's radically different. Um, it is radically different in the sense that it alone says you can't earn your way to God. Christianity alone says that it is only by grace through faith that you can obtain a right relationship with God. Without exception, every other religion throughout the history of mankind is the opposite, is the idea of how do we work our way to God, which the Bible says is absolutely impossible. But you look through the history of worlds of the world and groups pop up with their own ideas of how can we work to God. And then they bump into each other. Civilizations bump into each other and they synchronize their religions. Like they start to steal a little bit from here, steal a little bit from there, plug it in over here. And like they um, amalgamate and come up with these like new weird uh, forms of religion. But Jesus Christ steps in and says, no, it's not going to work that way with me. The gospel of Christ is incompatible with the world's way of thinking. He gives a second illustration here of incompatibility. Wine and wineskins. In verse 17, Jesus says, Nor do people put new wine into old wineskins. Otherwise, the wineskins burst, and the wine pours out, and the wineskins are ruined. But they put new wine into fresh wineskins, and both are preserved. So what happens, wineskins, leather pouches for wine, what happens to leather over time? It crinkles up and just ends up falling apart. It gets kind of brittle and like inflexible um, and uh, crusty maybe, you know. And so wine, when you put it into a wine pouch, typically there's still going to be some fermentation over time. And the gases from that are going to cause whatever the container is, it's in to need to expand or some pressure within there. So if you take new wine that still has some ways to go in the fermentation process and you put it into old, rigid, crusty wineskins, as the fermentation process releases that gas, it's just going to rupture that old crusty wineskin, and then the wineskins are ruined, and all the wine's going to pour out. How do you put old wines and new wineskins? If you put, I'm sure it's perfectly fine at that point. Um, no concerns with putting old wine into new wineskins. Not the point we're driving at, but no concerns there. If you ever, if if yeah, if you ever get into that situation, talk to your parents. Um, but uh, Jesus is saying here, new wine still has a way to ferment, 
still going to release some gases, but it's okay. You put that into new wineskins and both can expand with it, right? So you would think with the Pharisees, the Pharisees and the scribes, they are experts in the Old Testament, which is God's word. No mistake. No mistake about it. It is God's word, the Old Testament, and they were experts in it. Sadly, they missed the point. They're a great illustration of the fact that you can be an expert in God's word and completely miss the point if you're not surrendering yourself in obedience to God, right? Like if your heart is not guided by love and submission to God, you can be an expert in his word and completely miss the point like the Pharisees, like the scribes. But from a human common sense standpoint, which God rarely works according to human common sense, but from a human common sense standpoint, you might think, well, Jesus, you're the Messiah. These people, the Pharisees, they've got this system. They've got like, it's a system that's built on your law. They're experts in it. As the Messiah stepping in to institute the new covenant, why don't you just ride on this, the coattails of this system that's been created and just use these Pharisees, use their system as the tool for your kingdom? Because men made it, and that means it's not perfect. Especially if they know all the gospel and want their own way. That means that they're probably smart enough to twist it around so that your regular guy on the street believes it. Yeah, so. for sure. Um, but uh, what would the so the Pharisees here? They're the old wineskin, though. It, what Jesus is doing here is not compatible with their system. It would it would just the Pharisees are already destined for for being ruined. Jesus here, he, he you'll notice he usually chooses the most unlikely in the world. He chooses the lowly, he chooses the weak, he chooses the tax collector in Matthew. He takes his gospel uh, out from, you see, Acts, it expands to the Gentiles. Jesus did not rely on the world system. There was no adjusting Pharisees, the Pharisees' way of thinking. Just like Jesus is not something that you can take and attach on to Mormonism and make it okay. Or you can't just take uh, uh, Islam and attach Jesus and make it okay. Or like any form of legalism out there, you can't try to hold on to that form of legalism, whatever it may be in your own mind, and attach Jesus to it and have it be okay. Think about what Paul said in Philippians 3. Paul was a Pharisee. He, he, uh, he goes through all his fleshly credentials in Philippians chapter 3 and just explains like, hey, I was from the tribe of Benjamin. I was a Pharisee of the Pharisees, Hebrew of the Hebrews. Like when it came to the external acts of righteousness in the law, I was top notch. Yet when Paul came to Christ, did he try to hold on to those things, the old wineskin, if you will, and just infuse Jesus into it? No. You look at Philippians 3 and Paul says, all those things are trash. They're rubbish. 
all those things, I completely disregard them so that I can have a righteousness apart from myself that comes from faith in Christ, from knowing Christ. Paul's a great example to us of exactly what Jesus is teaching here. It's not taking your current way of life or your current way of thinking and simply adding Jesus to it, but it's having your life completely renovated and renewed. It's death to your old self so that you can be raised to walk in a newness of life. I love it when Jesus says that, hey, I'm a rock, and either you can fall on this rock and be broken and allow God to put you back together in his way, or conversely, he'll crush you to powder in judgment. I love the way Jesus puts that, just showing that there's no way to not be broken by Christ. Your options are to be broken now of yourself and raised to walk in the newness of life or to be destroyed in judgment. But it's not Jesus Christ plus anything. Does that make sense? Does that make sense, the illustration he's giving there? So when you, I think the way to really help apply this is to step back and just examine our own lives and say, okay, what are some ways that we can be tempted or attempt to do what Jesus is saying not to do here? I think one of the first places we can look is legalism of our own. So legalism comes in the religious way, right? Like through sacraments, people who say that you have the grace of God applied to your life through baptism or through the Lord's Supper or through marriage. Is that how you get God's grace applied to your life through baptism? No. You get the grace of God applied to your life through faith in Jesus Christ. But any form of legalism That's a religious way, right? Like we know the Roman Catholic way. You uh, do these sacraments to apply the grace of God to your life. But it's not just them. I think we can look at a lot of ways we can fall into legalistic thinking. The idea that, okay, if I'm just a good kid, I obey my parents, I do well in school, everybody tells me what a great student I am and what a great kid I am, Everybody tells me how mature I am, that I have a good head on my shoulders, that that must mean I'm okay. That must mean I'm okay. And Jesus, yeah, he's just something I tack on because it's part of being a good kid, right? You go to church, you go to youth group. Jesus is just something you tack on, just like the Pharisees might attempt to tack Jesus on to their fasting, to their public prayers, to their legalistic acts. To do that, to, to try to simply add Jesus to any form of legalism is doing exactly what Jesus is teaching here that we cannot do. Coming to Christ is a complete abandonment of yourself, a complete abandonment of your old way of thinking. I think another way we can do this 
is almost maybe the opposite side, a false or watered down version of the gospel, where think about how many people try to hold on to their old life and their old way of doing things and say, you know, I'm just going to say I believe in Jesus and just add a little church to my hedonism, still do what I want, still indulge the flesh, still live in disobedience, but in my mind, it's okay as long as I tack on a little bit of Jesus. No, that is absolutely not the message of the gospel. And we'll hit on that in a minute. I'm going to turn us to Matthew 16, if you want to head there in a minute. Or head there, and we'll look at it in a minute. I think also any attempt at trying to blend in Jesus with some other philosophical way of thinking or some other form of religion, like thinking, you know, Jesus is just another way to God. That kind of thinking is in direct opposition to the message of the gospel. What kind of devotion did Jesus call us to? Look at Matthew 16. Then Jesus said to his disciples, If anyone wishes to come after me, he must deny himself and take up his cross and follow me. For whoever wishes to save his life will lose it, but whoever loses his life for my sake will find it. What is Jesus saying there? When he says, take up your cross, what is that? What, what, is, what was the cross about? Death. The cross was about death. Can you halfway die? Can you 90% die? You're either dead or alive, right? You're either dead or alive. They might say you're near death, but not dead. But to take up your cross, Jesus is saying, you must die. A living sacrifice, as Paul calls it. There's no such thing as a partial sacrifice. The biblical sacrifices were total, were full. So when Jesus says, You must take up your cross, deny yourself, take up your cross, and follow me. That is a complete commitment of every aspect of your life. That is you reevaluating every component of your life and saying, How do I give this to Christ? How do I give this to Christ? Do an inventory of your life. You've got school, you've got Ways you try to make money, or if you're old enough, an actual job. You've got family, you've got friends, you've got church, you've got sports, you've got extracurriculars. You've got a lot of components to your life. And they're going to keep growing. You're going to keep adding more components. But being a follower of Christ is taking an inventory of all those components of your life and saying, okay, 
how does this belong to Christ? How do I make sure this is about following Christ? For whoever wishes to save his life will lose it, but whoever loses his life for my sake will find it. Do you see what he's saying there? It's kind of like the cloth and the wineskin illustration. You can't, when you come to Christ, it's not just coming to Christ saying, okay, I have my current life. How do I infuse Christ into it and make him part of it? No, it doesn't work that way. It's about losing your life. It's about whatever life you have, those things are now dead to you. Those things are now considered loss. Your old life is buried with Christ so that you can be raised and walk in a newness of life. It's a renewal of all those things, a repurposing of all those things. That's what the picture of baptism is. You think about what is baptism, go read Romans 6. Baptism is the picture of, it's you proclaiming to the world and showing the world around you the picture of your old life being buried, it's dead. You're verse 25 of Matthew 16, you've lost your old life, but you've got a new, new life. You have found your life, in the words of Matthew 25. In the words of Romans 6, you have been raised to walk in a newness of life. That's what the gospel is about. That's what Jesus is telling the disciples of John the Baptist here. He isn't coming to just tweet, alter, or infuse himself into something that was already going on in their lives, or already going on in this world, or already going on in your life. You need new wineskins. You need new life. He came to do something radically different. Let's pray. Lord, we thank you that you, uh, in your grace, show us the emptiness of the lives that we tried to live apart from you. And by your grace, we can put those lives to rest and have new life in you. I pray that we would never try to absorb the ways of this world, humanly ways of thinking, legalistic forms of righteousness. I pray you that we would never try to take those things and simply tag you onto them. But I pray that our lives would just be a blank slate for you to do what you, your will would have, that we may glorify you and love you and serve you. And it's in Christ's name we pray. Amen. Amen.